That's why you invite me over, isn't it? Just what to, whenever my self-esteem is getting a bit too high. Yeah, yeah, because you got to make sure that you know your head can still fit through the door. That's it. Yeah. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition, which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Well, welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. This is episode 15. I am back from holiday. My name's Hunter Mulcair and I'm here with Amy Dolson. Who is very jealous. And Well, Amy spent time doing essays. Crying in the dark. Crying in the dark. <laughs> I was relaxing on a beach. Bastard. <laughs> the relaxed, you'll be pleased to know the relaxed high from the holiday uh, dissipated quite quickly. Excellent. How was the essay writing? Awful. It, it it went on forever and didn't stop. What well, did stop eventually? I'm not sure I believe that. <laughs> it haunts me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I, uh, where I was in coastal northern New South Wales, there was a dead whale on the beach. And you took pictures. I did take pictures and I the pictures don't capture the smell. I can now cross that off the bucket list of things. Do we need to, to put smell. the pictures on the website? Mm, I don't think so. It's pretty gross. Anyway. Anyone who wants them, email us. Tutoringspot at gmail.com. Anyway, we digress. Uh, yes. So we're back and we are going to be talking about hoarding uh, and hoarding disorder. It's a new diagnosis. It's, not, it's a problem that has been recognized for a really long period of time. But in the last iteration of the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, version 5, they classified it as a separate disorder and it's become under sort of more increasing research. Mm. So it was quite an interesting thing. Uh, and everyone, I think, has a, a little bit of a hoard in them. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably about how extreme yes. that is. Yes. Did, did you have something you wanted to share with you? <laughs> well, I think it comes into that hoarding versus collecting. Yes. I collect books. Yes. And I would say that I collect them because they're all, you know, beautifully cared for and yeah. and arranged and enjoyed. Yeah. And have a sort of function. Yeah. See, I always see and I always sort of think about hoarding and I don't know how we can perhaps get into the definition of it, but I sort of think of hoarding as kind of collecting gone wrong mm. like kind of like it's all chaotic yeah and it's like oh, i'm keeping this because in case i might need it for that yeah kind of thing um, and it's often collecting things that don't have any value to anyone else yeah and they don't really have a sentimental value either it's just sort of i potentially could do that yeah 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 or, it, yeah collecting bits of paper or yeah. old newspapers or yeah and for a while i worked on the wards at a hospital sort of covering different geriatric wards and, and things like that. And it was a common occurrence where they would have someone elderly would be brought in mm -hmm. with some kind of health problem and then it would be discovered or it might even be discovered on, on admission um, by sort of the ambos that had brought them in or when someone goes home to do a home visit to see whether it's safe to discharge, yeah. that there is uh, a massive hoarding problem. And you know, it can cost ten, literally tens of thousands of dollars to clear up. And it can be a real headache for a hospital yeah. who are wanting to discharge someone. It can be very complicated. Yeah. Uh, and it's often one of those things that isn't picked up by the person 
reporting that no. they're a hoarder. It's more like, you know, the council finds them for having stuff in their yard yeah. or there's sort of public health worries yeah, or like the a, family. There's, there's like or, a fire or there's like, yeah, yeah, you know, there's like... It's external factors that tend to draw attention to it rather than someone going, this is an issue for me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. in sort of... In, in a generalised. In, in that kind of classic kind of thing. But yeah. then as we'll probably, as we'll talk about, there's increasingly better treatments for it and I think there's awareness of it. Yeah. Which comes with a diagnosis. Hmm. So that kind of stuff. So did you want to start us off? Yes. So the article that I found is called Conferring Humanness, the Role of Anthropomorphism in Hoarding by Timpano and Shaw in 2013 in Personality and Individual Differences. I am going to struggle to say anthropomorphism multiple times, but we'll see how we go. And what does that actually mean? So basically it means that you put human characteristics on non-human things or animals. So... You assume that they have motivations, intentions, goals, emotions, stuff like that. So, like, when I was a kid, I cracked it that my mum bought one of those chains that you could peg up teddies onto to hang them from the ceiling because I said that she was hurting their ears. Yeah. Yeah. Creating a character or assigning a character to an object. It can also apply to animals as well. And so, how does it relate to hoarding? So, it's... There's a few things that it's kind of been found to be related to, like a high desire for control and a desire to explain, understand and predict your environment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also related to a desire for social contact um, and a really strong emotional connection to objects. So the authors were wondering whether the sort of hoarding behaviour that happens is because people assign these kind of emotional constructs to the objects that they're hoarding Mm -hmm. so before now there's only been case studies looking into it no sort of larger scale research so individual people saying things like i had to buy that item because it looked lonely on the shelf yeah for example so they wanted to know whether there was a relationship between hoarding behavior and anthropomorphism while controlling for mood and anxiety symptoms And then they also wanted to know whether there was an interaction effect of hoarding beliefs as well. So they tested their hypotheses on 72 uni students who were recruited as part of a broader study. So it was a non-clinical sample. Uh, They asked them to complete a whole bunch of measures that were looking at each of those key variables and looking at factors that are part of hoarding behavior. So like acquiring, keeping, that sort of thing. Yeah, there's there's acquiring, there's keeping, and then there's clutter. Yeah, and then they also looked at attachment to objects Mm -hmm. as well. So what they found... You to work it in every pod, don't you? (laughs) I can't help myself. (laughs) You'll get yours in as well. (laughs) There's there's no Star Wars hoarding. Oh, actually, maybe I didn't look at that. Anyway. No, there'd have to be something. It's collecting. Anyway. So they found that higher anthropomorphism was related to greater difficulty discarding objects, uh, higher rates of acquisition, a tendency to acquire free objects, but not to pay for them, Mm -hmm. uh, emotional attachment to items, and a sense of responsibility about items. And all of that was significant while controlling for mood symptoms. Right. Yeah. So how... Say that in English. So people who were higher in anthropomorphism, so who had more of that kind of... um, you know, tendency to apply human characteristics to objects. Yep. We're also higher in... Acquiring stuff. Acquiring stuff, having difficulty discarding things, acquiring free stuff. Yep. And being emotionally attached and responsible for 
items. Yeah. Which all kind of makes sense if you're imbuing this sense of self to an object. So then they looked at interaction effects and essentially what they found were that people who were higher in anthropomorphism and were also higher in need for control then had higher collecting of items. Mm-hmm. The same thing happened with higher memory about objects and higher responsibility about objects also. So there was sort of a pairing of that. And the same was found with emotional attachment to a new object. So they were given a mug yep. and then completed measures about that mug. Yeah. And so they had a greater attachment to the new mug that had just come into their possession. If they had higher control, higher sort of sense of memory about an object and higher responsibility. Mm, it seems to be pretty logical, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So, and I mean, it made a lot of sense to me in terms of understanding the distress that people with hoarding can feel when they have to get rid of stuff. Yeah. Because if you're sort of thinking of it as a human-like object, discarding it then is far harder than if it's just a piece of paper. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, if you think that it's going to suffer in some way from being thrown yeah. out or, or some it, sort of relationship. Or you have like a, a memory of it, a clearer memory of it, mm. you know, or you kind of, you need to control your environment and so like, you know, you want to kind of keep everything in a particular kind of way. That yeah. Kind of stuff. yeah. Yeah, so it sort of made sense to me. Yeah, that makes kind of sense. It's mm. kind of a nice, easy introduction to yeah. it. Well, so, shall I go into mine? Yeah, absolutely. So, the, the paper I've got, it's probably a bit more dense. Mm-hmm. It's called An Examination of the Role of Intolerance of Distress and Uncertainty in Hoarding Symptoms. And it's by Brittany Mathesa and colleagues. It was published in Comprehensive Psychology in 2017. So you were talking sort of about hoarding as a sort of a general phenomenon, mm-hmm. right? So this in this study, they look, use similar sample, but... Yeah. Talk, they talk about hoarding disorder as distinct from hoarding. Mm-hmm. So they say that hoarding disorder can be defined as a persistent difficulty with discarding items due to distress associated with discarding or a perceived need to save items regardless of their actual value. Mm-hmm. So that's a more yeah. strict definition. A d- difficulty with discarding items must result in the accumulation of clutter, mm-hmm. so which congests living areas and significantly compromises the intended use of the home. Yeah. There's lots of TV shows, that, like reality TV shows, where you get people clearing out yeah. so, uh, so some hoarder's house or something like that. And it's phenomenal. And I don't know, have you seen the um, measures of hoarding where it's pictures of of houses with things accumulated and kind of the the level of it ranges from a house that's quite neat and tidy with you know a couple of magazines on the table that sort of thing through to not being able to see the walls or the floor and things being piled up to the ceiling so that's sort of the range of severity yeah yeah Yeah, exactly interesting yeah and so and they also talk about like for the disorder it must the, the behavior must cause significant distress or impairments in functioning which is yeah. kind of what you're sort of saying there yeah so originally it was kind of thought i think to be a subgroup or a aspect of obsessive compulsive disorder yeah because it kind of shares that kind of element of compulsion around mm. things but eventually they've decided obviously to have it as a discrete diagnosis and so they think it's about two to six percent of the population which is a fair amount yes well it's more than schizophrenia schizophrenia Mm. is what one percent i think yeah so models of the disorder so thinking about from a psychological perspective suggest that there's information processing biases and dysfunctional beliefs about possessions which contribute to maladaptive saving behavior so i mean that would fit with that kind of yeah anthropomorphism yeah nailed it (laughs) behaviors like acquiring or not discarding 
act as like avoidance strategies and sort of aimed at preventing distress associated with making a decision yeah. about a possession. So this is like a sh- classic short avoidance always re- results in a short-term reduction in distress but exacerbates things long-term and as a result, this reinforces these kind of maladaptive saving behaviors because you need to do more avoidance yeah. to get the same to, 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 relief or to because you've got you've got this ongoing distress yeah. so if you think about it another way it's like if you're avoiding doing your assignment yeah then you need to keep avoiding it to not yeah. be distressed about it yeah which then increases just because you got to hand the assignment in. yeah amy donaldson um so. i did not avoid <laughs> <laughs> so they wanted to look at what factors might be contributing to that kind of cycle. Mm-hmm. And so they, they talk about two constructs, distress intolerance. So this is this inability to tolerate aversive emotional states. Mm-hmm. So if you have elevated distress intolerance, then you have difficulty tolerating, understanding and managing your own distress. Yep. Right? So there is evidence that suggests that hoarding symptoms are associated with high distress tolerance. And because of difficulties tolerating distress with these decisions but there's some confusion as to whether this relationship seems to may also be confounded by some other factors mm-hmm. so if you control for anxiety and depression that relationship's a bit more mixed okay right? so there's the other second factor they look at which is confusingly it's got intolerance in the title called intolerance of uncertainty mm-hmm. so this is the perceived inability to endure an emotional response that's triggered by the absence of certain information and is maintained by subsequent perceived uncertainty okay so amy's looking confused which probably means that people at home are, uh, <laughs> a good way to think about it is like if distress intolerance is like a broad inability to tolerate distress yeah whereas intolerance of uncertainty is a more specific inability to tolerate the unknown about a particular thing okay does that yep. make sense yeah so they're moderately correlated mm-hmm. so statistically but they're conceptually different concepts yeah yep. so studies suggest that individuals with hoarding symptoms hold on to or acquire possessions due to an inability to tolerate an unknown outcome that could accompany this the decision to discard or to not get something, mm-hmm. right? So you're like, oh, God, I'm not sure if, you know, if I don't get it, then what would happen? Yeah, or, or if I get rid of it, what, what, what would happen? happen? Yeah, what if I then need it? If, if you can't tolerate that, yeah. whereas like most people go, well, I could probably just go buy another one. Yeah. Or I'd be Do I like, need my visas from 1980 yeah, or can I? Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Or do you really need all your tax papers or yeah. I don't know, whatever, right? Like, so from, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. What these authors wanted to do was look at how these two factors influence hoarding symptoms, whether they act independently uh, and whether they also sort of synergistically work. Mm-hmm. Right? So they have, they have a good discussion around this, but I'm sort of skimming through it. And essentially they expected that if you were high in both, you'd have higher hoarding symptoms. Mm-hmm. Two studies. First one, they ran at a university clinic in Florida. Mm-hmm. 254 individuals presenting for treatment were giving questionnaires and a semi-structured interview. So were these people who presented for... No. So just presented so, for any so issue. anyone who's rocking up to this university clinic. Yeah. And so it was like a range of diagnoses. Okay. And so like only like 1.2% of this group had hoarding disorder. Okay. Right. So, so it was, you know, m- m- predominantly mood disorders. Mm-hmm. Things like that. So the overall... So the, the questionnaire that they use is called the savings inventory revised yeah. scale 
And you can actually look that up on the internet and do it yourself. So the savings inventory revised scale. I have to do it. I scored below the cutoff. Yes. Excellent. Um, do we need to pause now so that I can do it and then come back to this? <laughs> we can do it in the break. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, quite, it's actually quite interesting to look at that look at that scale and to do it and kind of actually think about. Because I thought, oh, you know, maybe I do hoard a little bit. Mm. But not really. No. Yeah. no. So, so the cutoff, so when I say cutoff, that means it's like a score at that level or higher indicates that you've got a clinical level of yeah. that symptom. 41 is a cutoff. And so the, 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 the mean score for this group was 21, so okay. much lower. Yeah. Right. So going through the results quickly, they found that overall hoarding was predicted by age, by presence of negative affect and intolerance of uncertainty, right? Yeah. So that's certain tolerance and says that specific inability to tolerate the unknown. 22% of the variance was explained by that model, mm-hmm. right? Distress intolerance and the interaction effect between distress intolerance and intolerance of uncertainty weren't predictive. Interesting. So, so this dis- overall distress intolerance was yeah. in the model, I think when you looked at it just in a relationship by itself, looked like it was associated, but when you controlled for all these other factors, yeah. it, the positive association was lost. They break the hoarding scale down into subscales, so acquiring, discarding, clutter. They found similar similar results essentially. So, And if they took out negative affect, the results didn't really change. Second study, 526 people, and they recruited them through an online crowdsourcing marketplace, mm. which I thought was quite interesting. They were United States sample again, 18 or older, and then there was... Um, a couple of other criteria to qualify for the study. Not that important. Similar score on the savings inventory scale. This time they added neuroticism mm-hmm. into the thing. So in this study, neuroticism, intolerance of uncertainty were predictive of overall hoarding. So about the same 20% of the variance. Distress intolerance, again, was not mm-hmm. uh, predictive. And similar findings when they broke the symptoms into specific domains. There was one finding that suggested an interaction between intolerance of uncertainty and overall distress intolerance. And that was that individuals with elevated intolerance for uncertainty and discrete, decreased distress intolerance had highest clutter symptoms. Okay. To summarize, the main points are that distress intolerance and intolerance of uncertainty are both associated with increased hoarding symptoms. Intolerance of uncertainty may be particularly salient mm-hmm. as a risk factor and a maintaining factor. And so they're suggesting that those with hoarding symptoms have may have difficulties discarding or may excessively acquire possessions due to difficulties tolerating the uncertainty associated with making the decision about a possession. So this is, what if I get rid of this thing and need yeah. it again? Or what if I don't? What if I don't purchase it and miss an opportunity to do so again? Yep. Right. Which, when you read it out like that, that's it's a very it makes reason- sense. It's a very reasonable thing, and I think we would all have had that. Yeah. At some point in time. It's just about the frequency and kind of intensity of that, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, and it's yeah. kind of the classic kind of uh, thing with psychology of like a dimension. Yeah. Which is that like it becomes, you know, or a spectrum. Like it, Yeah, you, you don't fit into one box or another. It's kind of... Yeah. And, yeah. It, and then what we sort of often have is like a threshold point. It's like, well, okay, yep, this is really a problem. Yeah. Uh, so that kind of thing. So... So previous research has shown that hoarding symptoms are associated with indecisiveness and doubt. Mm-hmm. So they were suggesting, you know, maybe intolerance of uncertainty, maybe one mechanism that underlies such indecision, which sure. makes sense. And they also talked about sort of uncertainty as being 
potentially being interpreted positively and negatively. So uncertainty could be viewed as a threat, so, you know, negative consequences of discarding or not acquiring something. But it also could be interpreting as positive when considering a possession's potential utility. Oh, I, I could use this in yeah. many ways. Yeah. Which is kind of an interesting way of kind of uh, thinking about mm. uncertainty. And that's a more manageable, less threatening view of uncertainty. Yeah. It's more about planning for the future. Yeah. It's actually interesting, just the thought occurred to me, like in my thesis on information needs mm. in cancer patients. So like that's what cancer patients want to know. Um, I came across a theory about uncertainty management and this kind of idea of that we actively manage our uncertainty. In certain, like, yep. like, you know, because if you're pregnant, often people don't find out the sex of the child. So yep. they're actually increasing their uncertainty yep. or maintaining it versus a drive to reduce it. Mm. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's sort a of bit, try and stay within your own comfort zone. Yeah. So it's a bit, so, we're, so often uncertainty is viewed as something that's bad, mm. but actually it's, it, it has positive and negative valence. So anyway, back to hoarding. Mm-hmm. Treatment wise, they sort of suggest that targeting cognitive distortions associated with uncertainty intolerance, like so, you know, uncertainty being threatening, catastrophic, and teaching skills to increase an individual's ability to cope with uncertainty mm-hmm. or the aversive emotional responses associated with it might be helpful in treatment. Yeah. And they've found that reductions in intolerance of uncertainty is associated with reductions in symptoms symptoms of other anxiety disorders so generalized okay. anxiety and social phobia yeah so it's kind of like it kind of touches on what's worked in some other disorders mm-hmm. so i thought that was like i mean it's a bit dense but i think but it it makes sense of those underlying mechanisms that could be at play yeah yeah and it's quite logical like it it feels it feels right like it's yeah. the right yeah it okay. feels right yeah and yeah i always find that interesting with a study or reading psychology when you can read something and there's a, a good fit like an internal fit yeah. to it so all right shall we go over to my next one yep let's do it okay so this is called characteristics and antecedents of people who hoard animals an exploratory comparative interview study by Steckerty and colleagues in the review of general psychology a little while ago, 2011. Is this because I tagged you on a video of a woman living with a thousand cats? Partly. <laughs> I also find it really interesting because it, to me, it feels different from other types of hoarding, mm. and it's certainly far rarer than hoarding objects. Mm. But I find it quite an interesting, an interesting subset. It's interesting because I it straight comes to mind two cases one that i read about of guy with like lots and lots of dogs yeah and it was like a real problem because there was too many it was a health risk this guy couldn't financially manage it but they couldn't the council getting rid of them like they were like this guy's not going to cope psychologically remember another one i saw like you know this this person was like american tv show with like lots of cats yeah all really unwell yeah it's like a real problem yeah yeah, it's really, it's it's an interesting one. And when I was looking for research, most of it came from either animal welfare kind of research mm-hmm. or legal issues. So yeah. reporting on cases where it had been taken to court that people had been hoarding animals yeah, right. or from a public health perspective because there are lots of concerns if you've got lots of animals, particularly in, say, a house. Yeah. And you're not caring for them or cleaning up after them, then there's often health and safety 
kind of concerns, both yeah. for the person living there, but then the neighbourhood in general. We must do the animal welfare. And the animal welfare, so, yeah. I mean, this is not sort of talking about like having sort of a cup, like one or two extra animals that no. you shouldn't have. No. It's like, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 more animals than you should Absolutely. have. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's little psychological research about why people hoard animals they had a few hypotheses so there's um, some research on addictive behaviors and hoarding animals uh delusional beliefs about animals so that they have a sort of special connection with them there's a fair amount of research about trauma and hoarding animals coming from a sort of relational attachment perspective of not being able to have relationships with other humans and so sort of seeking out comfort and connection from animals and then generally just considering it as a subset of other hoarding that that isn't particularly different. Yeah. So what they wanted to do was compare animal owners to those who met the criteria for hoarding animals. Uh, It was interesting the way they found their participants. The animal hoarders were identified through animal protection agencies that were investigating complaints against people for their care of animals. Mm. And then the animal owners were recruited through ads that were pitched at animal lovers. So they interviewed 27 people and there were no significant demographic differences between the two groups. They did a really thorough semi-structured interview with approximately 100 questions. Mm. took an hour and a half to two hours to do. So they looked at a whole bunch of different social factors, life history, relationship to animals, mental health, Hmm. the works. And then they compared the two groups quantitatively and then did some qualitative analysis as well. So they found that the hoarders and the control group didn't differ in the amount of animals they had. Can you guess what the mean number of animals was? It was higher than what I was expecting. What did you expect? <laughs> I can't say because I know. I expected, I expected under 10. Yeah. I was going to say 10. 31. Mean number of animals. Mean number of animals. Wow. Uh, the range was 14 to over 80. Yeah, the cats cats were most heavily collected by both groups. Uh, they also collected dogs, horses, sheep, goats, reptiles, birds, rabbits, rodents, and wildlife. Were any of these people farmers, by any chance? Because that, that would rule them out, right? Sorry, the wild. No, no, because they, they identified as animal lovers rather than having an anything to do oh, with... Oh, what? Hang on, this is not... So, the... this is both hoarders and animal lovers. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah, which... It's interesting. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. So uh, did they break down the mean number by group? So there was no significant difference in the amount of animals by animal lovers or by animal hoarders. Right. And so they base the criteria around it, around that sort of impairment, care for animals, things like that. Right. So it was more around the kind of diagnostic criteria rather than the amount. So like, like the difference between collecting objects and hoarding yeah. Objects. Okay. okay. That's yep. completely what different to what I thought. Yeah, was. I thought it was going to be you know number mm. thing that if yep. you that's what I thought. Yeah, volume. Well, these animal lovers would have like you know two cats. No, so they had <coughs> mean of thirty one. Okay. Anyway, yeah. Continue. So in both groups, most of the animals were adopted. Out of the hoarders, eighty one percent of them had been raided by the police or mm. an animal welfare 
agency or threatened with removal of the animals by authorities. Uh, there'd been no investigations of the control group. Yeah. Poor animal care was found with 44% of the hoarders and 9% of controls. And what was interesting and, and a little, I found a little gross, um, was that almost all of the hoarders and just over half of the controls described animal freedom at home, which meant that the animals could eat, sleep, defecate and whatnot wherever they wanted inside yeah. the house with no restrictions on that whatsoever. Yeah. Which, when you're considering that they're also collecting things like dogs and horses and stuff like that, it's... Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All of the participants reported stressful life events, but the hoarders were marginally more likely to report a chaotic home environment or stressful life events as children. Mm. So, when they compared the number of people reporting different life events and different traits between the two groups quantitatively... They found that the controls were more likely to have an extreme reaction to an animal death in childhood, uh, to have had a stronger emotional reaction to animals in childhood. But then for the hoarders, they were more likely to say that animals had human characteristics, so tying back into that anthropomorphism. Um, They had more of a belief in animal personalities in general. They were more likely to have negative family relationships as children, so difficulties with attachment, lots of conflict at home, that sort of thing. They also had higher rates of distrust of authorities, probably unsurprisingly given that they'd been raided and whatnot. Um, And they had poorer adult functioning, so they reported damage to their house, sort of difficulty keeping up with daily household things yeah. work functioning things like that and social relationships yeah because so, yeah i did come across some stuff where they talked about sort of particularly hoarding in the elderly and sort of being associated with cognitive dysfunction and things like yeah that. so i mean i didn't read a lot about it so i can't elaborate but mm. you know this individual that has poor attachment as a, as a child and then kind of puts human characteristics on animals yeah. and then it's got poorer functioning. Yeah, it's sort of having sort of, trouble coping with Having trouble coping life. sort of all sort of leads to kind of situation that potentially gets out of control. Yeah. Versus, say, a group that what, you, you know, was animals were very kind of meaningful to them as a younger person. Yeah. But they're coping quite well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, they're caring for the animals quite well. They're adopting animals to look after them. Yeah. It's sort of, it's a different flavour to it. It's a much it's, more positive in control. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, I kind of, I wondered about that sort of, uh, both kind of to me have a compulsive sort of underlying thing mm, of like, you know, mm. the animal lovers, sort of that feeling of like a must look after yeah. the animals, like to have that. That many still to me seems like I mean, it's an impressive study, but you would you would wonder what it would be like if you had uh, a sample of people who just had one animal. Yeah, well, I did. I I read a couple of different articles about animals yeah. and hoarding, and in a non-clinical group, it was you know there were just a couple of couple of animals. Yeah, but then there have been other research studies where it's into the hundreds of cats of people in you know suburban wow. houses and having that many and i've certainly heard of where you know they've had to have crime scene cleaners and things come and and do monthly clean of people's houses because they haven't gotten rid of their animals and have it's very sad it is it's awful for both the animals and the people it seems to have more of a consequence in a way than the other kind of hoarding Mm. yeah interesting so there you go positive note (laughs) i know (laughs) so what we often like to do 
is to talk about how you might treat a particular problem on this pod, as well as talking about the ins and outs of a particular problem. So this paper is Short-Term Cognitive Behavioural Group Treatment for Hoarding Disorder, a Naturalistic Treatment Outcome Study. And this was published in uh, this year, 2017, in Clinical Psychology and Psychotherapy. And it's by Richard Moulding and Maya Nedeljokovic and Michael Kyrgios, who's very uh, big in Australian psychology, and Deborah Osborne and Christopher Morgan. So treatment for hoarding disorder was previously thought to be sort of ineffective mm-hmm. and the disorder itself intractable. But the current thinking is that this was due to treatments being based on protocols for obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah. More recently, this recognition of hoarding disorder as a separate entity, the CBT protocols now sort of target hoarding beliefs per se. Mm-hmm. And so these have been developed and that's yielded some positive outcomes. So rather than a general kind of obsessive yeah. perspective, yeah, being so I mean, specific. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so loosely the OCD treatment is you work with the person to stop doing the compulsive behavior, yeah. literally just stop. Yeah. Okay, you are to not uh, wash your hands. Yeah. And I mean, there's a whole sort of, of reduce it over time. Yeah, and, there's a whole yeah. lot of protocols around that and get them to tolerate not doing that. Mm. And so, obviously, that's what they were trying to do. Whereas the more recent sort of protocols look at the beliefs behind hoarding. So, the common stuff mm-hmm. that we were just talking about before about, yeah. you know, what's going to happen, all that kind of stuff if I don't do this or I don't do that. Yeah. And that's yielded some positive stuff. So, so from research, the, there's a large overall effect size in uh, CBD treatment studies for horny disorders. Mm-hmm. Individual CBT ses- might be 26 sessions running 69 minutes each time, perhaps with some longer home visits, and that's shown to be effective. But as you could probably think about, that's quite expensive treatment and probably difficult for most people to access. Yeah. And I would suggest probably difficult to find someone who's going to do that with you. Yeah. Even if you were the motivated. Yeah. Right, that kind of stuff, let alone convincing a family member to go off and do that kind of thing. Absolutely. So group treatments in psychotherapy are much more cost effective because mm-hmm. you can treat... Multiple at once. Yeah, six people at once or eight people at once or ten people. And they also kind of have group treatments have this like... They decrease stigma, shame and social isolation. And so in group treatments for hoarding, that's been researched and they've been shown to be effective as well. So medium to large effect sizes. Okay. The authors highlight that these programs have all been longer term, the 20 plus sessions and also conducted in the United States. So a similar length treatment to yeah. the individual. Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. So this paper focuses on a study that was done here in Melbourne, in Australia. Mm-hmm. And it was looking at with a shorter-term program of 12 sessions conducted in a community setting and rebated by the Australian Medicare system Mm -hmm. would be effective. So what they did is the participants completed a questionnaire intake Mm -hmm. in the last session and then also 12 to 14 weeks post. And they were screened face-to-face to make sure they met criteria for the group and the sessions were weekly. So this study, they collected data for over three years and so they ran... 12 group programs mm-hmm. in that time, six to eight people in each, and there was a total of 77 participants. Okay. They found that six six of these had missed one or more sessions, and so what they would do is they'd have brief makeup sessions to kind of keep up with it. Mm-hmm. And about 27% had a home visit by their clinical psych. Okay. In the study. So 
I won't go through all the measures. I mean, they use the saving inventory revised and a few other things as well. So it's quite interesting. So based on Steckerty and Frost's individual CBT programs, that mm -hmm. was the author from the previous study, they also placed emphasis on reducing the common sense of self-blame related to and contributing to hoarding. Yeah. Also reducing the hopelessness that leads to low motivation, social problems, and also reducing isolation, which can, yeah, you know, uh, that's also important associated with distress. So, in, in this vein, what they would do is they would do activity scheduling, and they would frame that in a kind of classic depression treatment framework, which mm -hmm. is like let's be kind to oneself. You know, let's, yeah, you know, you need to treat yourself to positive activities instead of I can't do this activity until I deal with my hoarding. Yeah, right. Yeah. So because. So starting to get some movement with some enjoyable activities yeah. and yeah. And then reducing the centrality of hoarding to their day to day life. Yeah. And then you can imagine that that would potentially help with a whole lot of aspects. So let me just go through sort of the 10 sort of main points of the treatment. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not too detailed, but it should give you a little bit of an understanding of how you might go about treating something like this. So the first part of it is obviously engagement and motivation and sort of developing a group. Yeah cohesion atmosphere there was psychoeducation about hoarding in the first session so this is really getting people to understand what we think hoarding is yeah ins and outs and psychoeducation what do you reckon benefits of psychoeducation are for a person about a particular problem uh i think that it's sort of often it's a normalizing thing there are other people who have gone through this yeah there's also Often then it resonates in terms of their own understanding of what's going on for them. It sort of helps people see patterns or kind of... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when you might not actually recognise it. Yeah. So Kind of going, oh, yeah, that does sound like me. Yeah, or it might be like, you know, you might explain to somebody that, oh, you know, when you get nervous... Yeah. ...that, you know, sometimes we go to the toilet. Go, yeah. Oh, yeah, I always do that. Yeah. You know, so this is a kind of thing where... Sort you, of making sense of the world. So you can normalise it for people and go, oh, yeah, okay, this is all part of it. But then other times they might actually discover that a whole lot of things that happened to them mm. they hadn't picked up yeah. they're actually they're all part of the one thing yeah so psychoeducation sounds really naff mm. but it's actually it's incredibly important yeah therapeutic skill yeah and i think a lot of beginning therapists fail to do it mm. and when actually and when it's done well it, it's really helpful incredibly powerful yeah so they they talk about building a personal model to understand hoarding behaviors mm -hmm. and then they do exposure to sorting and discarding including three in-session sorting exercises, mm -hmm. which were in the third, fifth, and eighth sessions. No, yeah. sorry, third, fifth, and ninth sessions. Some organizational and decision-making skills mm -hmm. in session four. Uh, I don't know the ins and outs of this program, but I mean, that could be quite, uh, like, even just simple of like, let, let's talk about how you organize stuff at home or day-to-day -day or how do you make a decision and talk through that. Yeah. The, <clears throat> the mid-course review, halfway at session six, and the purpose of that would be to allow participants to discuss their progress and then also keeping them sort of, I guess, boosting people's motivation. Yeah. And then some psychoeducation about thinking styles. So that would be classically, you'd be talking about people say, oh, well, you know, thinking styles, we can often be a bit black and white or, yeah. or nothing. So yeah. it's like everything's either really, really good or really, really bad. Mm -hmm. Or that we catastrophize, or that we personalize is often a classic one. Yeah. So it's like, oh, this happened, and that's because of me. Yeah, thinking that everything's all your responsibility or all everyone else's responsibility. Yeah. 
Yeah. So there's this yeah. kind of classic, if you type, if you Google thinking styles or yeah. maladaptive thinking styles, you will come up with some kind of sheet that is kind of common things that happen yeah. in when we're anxious and when we're depressed. That kind yeah. of thing. And they tend to be sort of, they have that feel of it being, you know, everything's terrible or everything's all my fault. It's sort of, there's no room for much movement. Yep. It's kind of, yeah. That's it. So and then, they're concrete. Yeah, they're very concrete. And so, and then the next step, obviously, is cognitive techniques and behavioural experiments for challenging, mm-hmm. like unhelpful thinking styles or unhelpful beliefs regarding attachment to objects. So this might be like you know the advantages and disadvantages of keeping object, monitoring your own thoughts whilst you know you're sorting mm-hmm. items and things like that. And then they talk about techniques designed to assist with acquisition and buying. So there might be. Rules for shopping, yeah, or exposure hierarchies, or emergency cards. So, I mean, you could imagine easily like a rule for shopping is, you know, don't buy it on the first time you see something. Yeah, would be a really. I mean, I'm just I'm just making that up, but yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure it'd be something like that. Yeah, don't buy the same object multiple times. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, or if you're gonna buy something, check in with someone else. Yeah, kind of thing. You know, yeah, the, the, the could could be a whole lot of ways of doing that. Hopefully the authors don't email us and tell us we're telling the wrong thing. And then the last two sessions, uh, relapse prevention, which yep. fits with that termination discussion we had, whatever pot ago was. So that kind of gives you an overview of the treatment. The results, it worked. Cool. Right? Uh, would be kind of a, a simple way of describing it. 77 completed treatment, only about half completed the actual post-treatment questionnaires. Mm-hmm. The sample is kind of interesting it's interesting just to think about. So a third, only a third were working. The yeah. mean age was 54, mostly women, 80%. Mm-hmm. The mean for the sample was 60 on the savings inventory. So the yeah. cutoff was 41. 40, yeah. So it's quite a, a high, but fits with overseas studies. Yeah. So they used the DAS-21 to measure mm-hmm. distress. 66% had depressive symptoms, 47% had anxiety, 55% had stress, and only... 26% had no emotional symptoms. Yeah. And around 90% had sought out treatment previously for psychological problems. Okay, yeah. I know that was a lot of figures, but really the main point I'm trying to say is this is a group that is has psychologically, mm. like has got some distress, is, is struggling, you know, two-thirds not working. Yeah. Well, psychologists would call it dysfunctional mm. in, in those kinds of indices, that kind mm. of thing. Struggling. So, yeah, they found that uh, hoarding symptoms decreased over the course of treatment. There was decreased by a large effect size. Yeah. They benchmarked it against other studies and found the effect was generally lower than mm-hmm. other studies, but that's not surprising given the shorter program length. Yeah. Right? So, you know, this is kind of more treatment, the better yeah. kind of thing. Clinically significant change. So there's a difference between change that you can observe versus clinically significant change. Yeah. So you might statistically see a change, but that change might be small and not considered clinically significant. Yeah. Like it might not be might not be meaningful, cured. yeah. A one measure of clinically significant change is about 34% hmm. of participants had clinically significant change. And they also found that depression decreased um, a moderate amount but not anxiety and stress. Okay. Kind of makes sense that anxiety and, and stress would be would still be elevated in that learning those skills and going through the process of starting to sort things would be a stressful yeah. experience, so... Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and you could imagine that like, if you finally got it cleared, you'd probably feel a bit better. Yeah. I, I thought it was a really, really nice study. Excellent. Excellent. Shall we take a break? Let's take a break. You have been listening to Two Shrinks Pod. See you soon. Mm-hmm. 
In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. So this is the part of the show where we say thank you for listening. And say nice things about us in public. That's it. Actually, I was looking at the Two Strings pod because I updated my phone to a new smartphone mm. and it had a different format for the podcast thing. And I noticed there weren't too many ratings of the show. So it would be super if people out there could rate the show on iTunes. And even if you want to type us a little written review, that would be really, really good. Because um, I think actually the only review that comes up is by someone called Hunter MMM. I wonder who that would I'm be. Not sure. I mean, did he have nice things to say? Uh, yeah, I think the yeah yeah, yeah he was positive. he was pretty positive. Yeah, I didn't realize that um that Hunter really liked our show. <laughs> <laughs> it was no Amy D. No rating I think. No, yeah. she thought that might be a little too suspicious. <laughs> I'm gonna cut that. Anyway. <laughs> yes. So please rate us. Send us an email. So uh, you can also check out our website. We uh, have links to all the shows up there. Uh, and also on each podcast episode, we also put the links to the articles if you are interested in yes. finding out a bit more about it. And Oh, and if you have any ideas for future shows or just want to give us some feedback in private, email us at twoshrinkspod at gmail.com. So we are, we're going to get back to the show and we're going to tell you whether Amy is a hoarder. Two shrinks pot. Okay, so we're back. So we're back. And I did the questionnaire in the, in the break. break yep. Because I couldn't stand Hunter having more self-awareness than me. <laughs> so the questionnaire is the savings inventory revised. Yep. And I am not a hoarder. What score did you get? I got 22. And the cutoff's what, 41? 41. I got 15. <laughs> I'm going to feel smug about that. It's all right. You're higher on Machiavellianism. Although I do have a cleaner that comes once a week, so maybe that... Yeah, see, I don't have that. I was higher on Machiavellianism. Yeah, you were, so, you know. Anyway. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> all right, speaking of which... That's it. So, this is our segment at the end of the podcast called Things We Came Across. What mm-hmm. did you come across this week? So, I was curious about why people troll people mm-hmm. on, like, dating sites, mm-hmm. things like that. Should I ask why you were curious about that? Because I've heard people talking about it and I can't imagine myself doing it. Yeah. And I kind of went, huh. Like, it just doesn't yeah. appeal to just me. perplexed. Yeah. So, I was, I was curious and I did find research conducted this year mm-hmm. in... The journal that I keep on citing, Personality and Individual Differences. Hello to the editors. I feel like they should sponsor us. We give them a lot of press. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Uh, It's called Trolling on Tinder and Other Dating Apps, Examining the Role of the Dark Tetrad and Impulsivity Mm -hmm. by March and colleagues. So they looked at trolling on what they called location-based real-time dating apps. So stuff like Tinder where it matches you with people who are geographically located near you and you can interact with them in real time Mm -hmm. rather than an like online website that's an oxymoron Uh, rather than a website where it's a delayed communication yeah yeah 
Uh, so they defined trolling as online communication intended to be provocative, offensive or menacing in an attempt to trigger conflict or cause distress for a person's own amusement. They described four elements common to the behavior, uh, deception, aggression, disruption, and then success. The success being the other person gets agitated and yep. you have successfully You're trolled them. Yep. Yep. And previous research has found that for victims of trolling, the um, outcomes are pretty similar to face-to-face harassment. Yeah, right. Yeah. So they uh, did a study with 357 adults. Three quarters were female, aged 18 to 60. 80% were heterosexual and they had to have used one of these apps before. So results, they found that men were more psychopathic, narcissistic, Machiavellian and sadistic than women. Yeah. Uh, In they, the study? Yep. Or like as a group that were trolling more? Uh, the whole st- okay. Of the whole group. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they found no sex differences for trolling behaviour or for uh, dysfunctional impulsivity. Mm-hmm. And then they whacked everything into a regression and they found that trolling was predicted by psychopathy, sadism and dysfunctional impulsivity. Mm-hmm. When they broke that down a little bit further, they found that impulsivity predicted trolling only if someone had higher levels of psychopathy and that sex didn't moderate any of the relationships. So the sort of mechanisms for what was going on so you mean like, was across male so and females. So whether male or female didn't... Moderate, didn't matter. Yeah. It was more about the those traits, the psychopathy and the sadism and yeah, right. that predicted it. Well, it's not actually that surprising, no, really. It's really not. Yeah. I mean, you'd expect the same kind of thing as you know, face-to-face harassment mm. or whatnot. Yeah. Enjoyment of other people's discomfort. Yeah, I think it also like you know, as technology has become increasingly commonplace, that it, like a text message is much more viewed as direct communication. Whereas yeah. I think when that technology came about... Yeah, it, it was, was seen as something separate. Seen as something separate. Yeah. So, and it was sort of a other other kind of form of communication, but not so much now. Mm. Yeah. So there you go. There was, no, there was no mystical reason why people troll. No, it's just no. that they were not great Although it, the model didn't account for a huge amount of variance. So I'm kind of curious well, what like else might be going variance? on. It's under 20%. Yeah, right. Curious what the other factors are. Mm. Yeah, because it's like 80%. Yeah, to be discovered. <laughs> to be discovered. <laughs> it defines some trolls. This is a really uh, uplifting topic there. Yeah, maybe. I know. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, w- one of the uh, factors that have also contributed to uh, Amy and I not doing podcasts is we've uh, been uh, watching a lot of Survivor. Just a tad. <laughs> Just a tad. <laughs> Nothing excessive. Uh, it's... I. I, I love watching Survivor. Me too. Because I constantly am thinking about like how would I actually go. Yeah. And what your next step would be. No, no. I think I'm not, not even that. It's You're not even more, that? Just, well, I mean, I do think a little bit about that, but more I just like constantly thinking like, w- would I be out straight away? Yeah. Or would I like win it hands down and, yeah. and be like a puppet master? I don't know. I think it would either go very well or very badly for you. Nowhere in the middle. <laughs> Nowhere in the middle. All See, it's a classic all or nothing yeah. style that we're talking about. Absolutely. So, we, so we've been watching a lot of that. It's been quite enjoyable. I came across an article in Insight, which is the Australian Psychological Society's magazine, mm-hmm. and by Dr. Simon Kinsella, who has worked as a psychologist uh, for reality TV. Your uh, dream job. Yeah, maybe. 
Okay. You'd only want to do it for Survivor, though, wouldn't you? Well, he did it for um, MasterChef for oh, about yeah. five years, and he's, it's some other shows. For the uh, food? I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't go The into, catering would have to be not, really good. does not go into his motivations for why he got into it. Does he talk about what the work was like? Uh, it sounds like it was hard. <laughs> like, I, I, I quite like MasterChef as well. <laughs> Gosh, should get out more. Yeah, um, so... Uh, it's all right. The seasons don't run at the same time. So, you still got some time to get out of the house each week. <laughs> That's it. You can do both. That's it. So, this uh, article is about um, psychologists and reality TV. Mm-hmm. One might say that APS might have had the finger on the pulse a bit sooner than 2017 for the reality TV, but the article itself is, is quite interesting. It talks about this boom of reality TV shows in the last 20 years, but also that, you know, there's been reality TV for quite a long time, like Perfect Match. They have this lovely photograph of uh, Perfect Match, which ran from 1984 to 1989. Mm. We've got Candid Camera, which yeah. is a very, very old show. Mm. You don't really think of that as a... Well, it doesn't automatically come to mind for me as a reality TV show, but it is. No, yeah, and yeah. like Young Talent Time, like, yeah. which I th- I actually went to as a child. Really? It's like, it's like one fraction of a memory mm. of it. Hmm. Yeah, anyway. So they talk about the series psychologist being like an off-screen role, really. Like, you know, you're involved in the screening of people for auditioning for shows, yeah. providing support for participants during and after production and transmission. And that psychologists are sort of a part of almost all reality TV productions now. Hmm. And so with this idea of duty of care to participants. Yeah. And I would also suggest there's probably a fairly important role of making sure you you get people who are going to, you know, if you're investing all this time yeah. to put them on TV, you don't want them being overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, you want them to be able to complete whatever yeah. the... I mean, in, the yeah. same, in the same way that I've got a colleague who works for AFL. Yeah. And... You know, it's important that they, I mean, these clubs invest a lot of money in these young men. Yeah, they expect them to perform. And they, well, they expect them to perform. And so they, you know, so psychologist is another aspect of that. So this kind of multi-layered role mm. versus, you know, the classic psychologist working in a clinic, which is I've just come in, Amy, and tell yeah. me about your hoarding problem or whatever yeah. it is, right? And this article kind of points out, you know, these shows are physically and emotionally draining, perhaps more so than most people would think, although I mean yeah. Survivor, I think it's probably yeah. pretty obvious. Yeah. Although they don't, in Survivor, the way they broadcast it, they don't get into like kind of the, how difficult that show must be. Yeah. Whereas I reckon you see it a lot more in like say MasterChef or something. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because that's part of the drama of it. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Survivor, it's, it's not so much of the focus. Yeah. And ever since watching, ever since we did that Dark Triad pod, yeah. I think it was pod five. Mm. I've always seen, like, did I give them all measures of Machiavellianism? Like, I'd be fascinated. To yeah. Know what, what the screening is. What the screening things are. Yeah. Um, Simon, please email us. <laughs> yes, let us know. Dot com, at gmail.com. Yeah. They, and talk about this very, very long hours of filming, time away from work, separation from family. You know, there was a young man who was, uh, he got most of the way through MasterChef and then, he was booted off the show because mm. he was keeping contact with his family because there was this really complicated family dynamic. Mm. I think someone had, was, someone had died and there was an inquest going on at the time. And, right. And so he was obviously wanting to be part of that. You know, so really, you know, the show would must go on. Yeah. But, you know, your life goes on hold. So yeah. it must be very difficult. So, and then there's all this other stuff, which is this kind of like, Participants become celebrities or minor celebrities, so people they get recognised. Yeah, 
that recognition can be positive, that recognition can be negative. Yeah. You know, people wanting to have selfies or trolling you and that kind of stuff. So, and then there's that, that idea of how you're seen on TV versus yeah. actually what it was like on the show. Yeah. Sort surely of your they, sense of self versus. Yeah. The portrayed yeah. self. And surely they manipulate that. Yeah. So, can I talk about a couple of ethical dilemmas mm. for the psychologist? The first one that comes up, though, I, I was a little surprised that it was actually on there. I mean, it's interesting that it's sort of talk about informed consent for the show. I mean, I wouldn't have mm. thought that, that was a psychologist's role. I would have thought that was more the producer's role. But yeah, on reflection, maybe, I don't know. You mean so informed consent to go on the show in the first place? Well, so Simon talks about how they, on multiple occasions, will explain to participants about uh, what it's going to be like on the show giving them an idea of like what they're going to go through so hmm. trying to avoid this thing of like people saying oh you know you never told us or i didn't yeah. expect it to be like this so similar as you would do for treatment yeah, but for medical treatment yeah yeah hmm. i mean i i'm a i have a very cynical view of this idea of informed consent hmm. because i actually don't think you could ever really be informed no unless you've done it before yeah and even if you've done something before... You're still going to have a whole bunch of ideas about what it's yeah, going to be like. It. Yeah. It's, I, th- I think it's a... I think it's a... It's well-intended. Yeah. I mean, and, and this is a whole... Maybe it's a whole podcast to yeah. talk about. But um, I think it's well-intended. But like in... Particularly in the medical domain. Yeah. All um, sorts of things can happen. Like someone says, oh, you're going to have... You're going to do this radiation treatment and you'll be fatigued yeah. after that. But the, re- the actual reality of how disabling that... Yeah. Just fatigue yeah. can be mind-blowing for yeah. some people. Hard to imagine. And, and No, you can't imagine. Yeah. It's like so, so same as someone who hasn't a child. Yeah. Childbirth's going to be painful. Yeah. Like it, you can't imagine it. Mm. So anyway, so he talks about kind of like they try and cover all bases, but you know, there's sometimes people get into a show and not really realize what they were signed up for or they, they tried, they understood, but then they still found the experience too, like much harder than they thought it was going to be and regretted it. So I guess there's this idea of like uh, do no harm to people. Yeah. That's probably the ethical principle. Yeah. They talk about confidentiality and I think that's... It's the first thing that came to mind when yeah. you brought it up. Did you, did you have a memory of that at all or something? Like I, I have a memory of uh, seeing uh, some big brother and there yeah. was a female psychologist talking about the test results of one of the participants like, yeah yeah and i just remember and i was doing my postgrad at the time i thought oh my gosh you yeah. should not be doing that yeah and even just the basic thing of if you're the psychologist for the show then all of the other people know that you're the psychologist for the other people yeah right. and if it's in like depending on what the environment is probably like i'm assuming that the sort of opportunities for private conversation perhaps might not be there i can remember on an american survivor the psychologist starting a session with one of the people who really? had been voted off on screen. Wow. And it was that thing of going, huh, that's, that's you know, millions of people yeah. seeing this. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, that would be easily avoided by having more than one psychologist. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, there'd still be some issues there. But you have that um, yeah. in medical settings where you're the only psychologist for yeah. a lot of different people who all know. And mm. you might be all know one other. Yeah, yeah. So. That kind of stuff. I mean, they, they talk about, you know, the participants provide information that's confidential, but, you know, they don't share that information for inclusion onto the show. Yeah. But that it might influence 
whether someone's accepted onto the show. Yeah. And then there's a dilemma about There's a lot that. of conflict of interest and Well, that's it. Like, yeah. you know, like if you've got, you know, a whole history of stuff that's going to mean that you're not suitable for the show, but yeah. you're otherwise suitable for the show. Like, see, so you know, you've got a history of performing badly under stress, cracking yeah. up under stress, but otherwise you're, you know, the producers Fine. want you. Yeah. Then, you know, there's pressure there for the psychologist to pass you and all that kind of stuff. So I thought that was quite an interesting kind of thing. And so that he talks about being aware of transference and countertransference. Yeah. And then talks about boundaries and that kind of idea that, you know, this is not a typical clinical setting. Mm. So, you know, your your interactions with a person uh, may be more informal than yeah. the typical kind of thing. There's often experience of being involved in these productions, like being part of a huge family, doing something fun and exciting together. And that can create perception that the usual professional distance that you have as a psychologist doesn't apply. Yeah. And so that could, you know, and you're on call to assist and... You can imagine there'd be far more sort of socialising with other people who are around yeah. in that sort of environment. Yeah. You know, in the psychology, you don't want to be aloof to people because mm. that means that you're not open. Yeah. But then at the same time, you're gonna, you need that at some point yeah. because you need to be professional. And that can be very challenging. Mm. And the last moment he talks about sort of self-care, which I, I kind of, I was initially like, oh, how stressful could it be? Yeah. I work in oncology, that's stressful. But the, the kind of the, in, the thing that he kind of talks about is just sort of the intensity of the work. Yeah. That there's short timelines. Yeah. Production, production, production. And, and probably the pressure is on making sure that people are okay to keep going rather yeah. than sort of managing things in the way you would otherwise. Yeah, yeah. that kind of stuff. So that, that kind of sounded interesting. It kind of finishes off on, you know, talking about ethical guidelines for practitioners in the field and they should be developed or they're going to be developed over time, that kind of stuff. It didn't hmm. say anything about how I get a job as Australian psychologist, Australian survivor psychologist. You should email him. Yes, yes. Or yes. if the producer's listening to shrinkspod at yeah. gmail.com. Yeah. Hunter would love the job doing that. <laughs> That's it. You'd yeah. love it too. Yeah. He's ready to go at a moment's notice. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. He's how, camping out in Samoa, ready how, for the next one. What would, what, would your, what would your strategy be on Survivor? Um, I, think, I think I'd be the person who everyone would tell stuff to. Yeah. And they'd kind of underestimate how much I was scheming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I'd I think I'd probably have that a bit. Yeah. I don't know. I'd be I'd be worried about sort of being thrust accidentally into a leader's role. Yeah. Because that would always happen to me in group projects. Yeah. Whereas I've like, seen. <laughs> yeah. Where, whereas like no one's taking the lead so I get frustrated. Oh come on and then I'd get voted off as yeah. a result. Yeah. Um but I think what I'd probably my main ploy would be, look guys I've seen how much weight we lose on Survivor. <laughs> it's like I need maybe two, maybe three weeks minimum. Yeah. And after that, you can just vote me off. That's fine. But I need, I need to so have you a just, solid period of time. Of you kind of go, you're just holding a place and then. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. That's yeah. It. I'll vote however you want. Yeah. And so you just kind of try and stick in there and use that time to then work out where to next or you really don't care if you voted out it. I, I think I'd be so hungry by that point. I wouldn't care. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Well, should we leave it there? Yes. Thanks, thanks so much for listening. It's been good to get back behind the mics. Yep. We will see you next time. See you later. Bye. What not?
the maximum amount of horses someone's hoarded? Because uh, that'd be expensive. You'd need to have oh, wouldn't it? a lot of money to hoard horses. I, I don't think you could hoard a horse. Well, they are. <laughs> but how? How to hoard a horse. <laughs> Feels uh, like a sort of Korean movie. <laughs> No, I don't like know why. Like one of those movies that, like, kind of like the title of that, it's like it's got nothing to do with anything. Yeah, or a German art house movie, and really, it's about death oh, and destruction. No, like, no, like a white, like a, a white American indie movie. Oh yeah, from like nice. Small, from, about a couple of teenagers. So. Yeah. Oh yeah, about yeah. a couple of teenagers, and one yeah. of them may or may not be gay. Yeah, and and one of them ODs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Set in the forest. It's a really great indie soundtrack. <laughs> And kind of that lighting with a bit of some kind of filter on it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, and then like two supporting roles by someone who's actually really quite famous. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. 